The ancient gods of Greece and Rome were powerful and annoying. They influenced the lives of humanity, often in petty ways. They were licentious, having intercourse with mortals, and thereby giving rise to offspring that were half-human and half-god, demigods. One of the most famous is, of course, Hercules, but there are many others. Zeus kept many human consorts, as did most of the other gods. Now what if, just what if, these gods still existed today? What if they lived in America and toyed with the affairs of Americans? What if the titanic struggles between the gods still happened? What would Zeus look like as an American? What if the gods still had to defend Olympus from invaders? What if demigods still lived among us? Welcome to Lies Speaking Truth, a podcast about the intersection of faith and fiction. Chris Gillespie and I, Roy Askins, are your hosts. Today our story is written by Rick Reardon, author of the immensely popular Percy Jackson series. Our story today is The Lost Hero, the first in a new trilogy in which he brings in some of the familiar characters from the Percy Jackson series, but he also introduces us to a couple of new characters as well. At the time of this recording, the second book uh, in the series has been published. That book is The Son of Neptune, while the third has yet to make its appearance. I don't believe there's a publication date out for it yet either, but The Son of Neptune uh, is a fantastic volume as well, so do read that when you get a chance. The publication dates uh, actually are published on, on his website. So, book one came out October 12, 2010. Book two, Son of Neptune, came out October 4, 2011. And he's committed to having book three come out next fall, or this coming fall, I should say. It's called The Mark of Athena. Book four, in the fall of 2013. And book five, in the fall of 2014. Oh, there's five books. Correct, just like Percy Jackson. I didn't realize. I thought there was just going to be three. Wow. There is also on his website, we'll link to, uh, a link of, of the map, a map of Camp Jupiter, which comes up later, I suppose. I suppose. Not in this book, is it? No, it's not in this book. Uh, nope. They have all sorts of extra resources, exploring Greek mythology, education stuff, etc. Which is one thing uh, I would like to say before we get too much into the story. I certainly appreciate it. I learned a lot... Uh... Uh, about Greek mythology that I didn't know before by reading the stories. I know that it's not uh, the same as reading Greek mythology, but uh, the stuff that I did verify seemed to be spot on in terms of the characters he's talking about, their personalities, traits, various children and offspring that these uh, various gods had, uh, was, for the most part, spot on. It was very interesting. There is a map of Camp Half-Blood, but I must have clicked on the wrong link before. Yeah. Yeah, there's Camp Half-Blood with a map, so you can kind of get get a lay for the land there. So there's all sorts of fun things that you can look at here on the website. So uh, We'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, just a few ground rules and comments about our process here at Lies Speaking Truth. First off, this podcast will contain spoilers. If you haven't read the story yet, uh, please pause the podcast, read the book, and come back after you've read it. Unless, of course, you want to know the ending first, then by all means, listen on. Secondly, we are here to discuss the intersection of faith and popular fiction. We're here to talk about how this story tells us something about ourselves, or about the world, or about God, or in this case, the ancient Greek gods. We're not here to make the story Christian and overlay a Christian veneer on the story. Rather, we want to tease out the themes in the story and see if or how they correspond to our faith and life. As always, we'll be using Dr. Veith's Reading Between the Lines and James W. Sire's The Universe Next Door as our guidelines for looking at this story. We recommend you get these books and read them through when you get a chance. 
Just a couple of uh, housekeeping comments. Please uh, look for us on Facebook. Uh, also look for us at our website, liespeakingtruth.org. You can contact us at talkback at liespeakingtruth.org. Please give us uh, a holler, an email. Uh, let us know what you'd like us to review uh, in the future and give us any comments. So, this time we're going to do something a little different where we try to talk about the themes of the story as we uh, progress through the story itself. Uh, so, there won't be as much of a dichotomy between the story uh, and the themes of the story like we've been doing previously. Uh, in, the, in the main section, or the beginning of the uh, section of the story, we meet uh, the main three characters, of course, right away as the, as the story opens. We meet Jason, Piper, and Leo. Uh, and each of the chapters in the story uh, is told from one of these perspectives. Uh, if you've read the Percy Jackson series, this is going to be a little different. Uh, we was reading a review of the series, and evidently Percy Jackson's written from a first-person per- first point of view, whereas uh, this series is written from third-person, and it alternates between the three major characters in the story. So in this novel, the three major characters are Jason, Piper, and Leo. In the next uh, volume, which I have read, The Son of Neptune, there's three other major characters. Uh, and the story alternates. Each each chapter is told from each of their different uh, points of view, as opposed to being first person. So uh, that'll be one difference that you you uh, notice in the story. The, the story starts with um, uh, Jason uh, showing up in the back of a bus between Piper and Leo, and he's lost his memory. He has no idea why he's sitting in the back of the bus. Uh, Piper and Leo seem to know him and uh, tell him about his past. Evidently, him and Piper have been. Uh, in, almost dating in some sense, or at least it seems that way. Um, everybody on the bus seems to know him, uh, and uh, they're on the bus going to a, a field trip in the Grand Canyon, correct? Correct. And they get to the to the uh, Grand Canyon eventually, and uh, it's there at the Grand Canyon that uh, eventually one of the other uh, kids in the bus turns into uh, one of these Vinti or wind spirits that then tries to attack and kill Jason. He told Jason that he'd been uh, trying to, uh, or thought about killing Piper and Leo, but uh, was told to wait for Jason as well, and that he was going to kill all three of them on orders from his uh, his uh, his patron. Uh, but of course, during this whole thing, Jason is uh, is stunned. He has no idea what's going on. He has lost all of his memories. It's revealed that he's able to fly, and what? And that he that he can control the storms. Oh, he's got he's got the coin in his pocket. He's got the coin in the... his pocket, and and we begin to see the the uh, the the Latin versus the Greek terms. He refers to everything in Correct. Latin terms, and that's the point I was trying to make. He refers to everything in Latin terms. Whereas uh, 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 Piper and Leo, and then eventually Annabeth and uh, uh, Butch refer to everything in Greek terms. Like he refers to the Venti, whereas she gives them their Greek name, which I forget whatever their Greek names were. Um, and so we begin to see this dichotomy between Latin and Greek, uh, which will eventually become more important later on in the story. So they're standing on the bridge. Uh, Jason gets attacked by this wind spirit. Um, he manages to banish the wind spirit by using his imperial gold sword, uh, while Leo gets rescued by uh, Coach Hedge, who turns out to be a satyr. Or, uh, of course, uh, Jason refers to him as a fawn, which is the Latin term, uh, but uh, satyr is the Greek term. Leo gets rescued by uh, Coach Hedge. Uh, Piper falls off the the uh, walkway that they're on that spans the Grand or doesn't span the Grand Canyon, but. Uh, uh, Sticks out from the Grand Canyon. You can it's a it's a glass walkway where you can look down into the Grand Canyon. She falls off. Jason 
uh, jumps off after her and then discovers that he can fly and brings her back up. And it's about this point that Annabeth and Butch show up with the chariot and the Pegasus uh, that uh, they eventually use to get uh, to Camp Half-Blood. One of the important points to note here is Jason is identified because he only has a shoe on one foot. Uh, and this actually comes from uh, the tradition of Aetolian warriors. The, the first Jason from Jason the Argonauts also was known for only having one shoe. Um, but evidently the Aetolian warriors uh, way back when were known for only wearing uh, uh, one shoe because it gave them better purchase in the mud when they were in a battle or when they were in a fight to have one bare foot uh, in the back. And then the foot in the front, the left foot was shod. Uh, and that's the sh- the foot they would have with their uh, their shields. That would be the shield side, and they would use that to kick their opponent in the groin, should they need to do that. So that's the beginning of the story. Uh, it basically introduces us to the three characters: Jason, Piper, and Leo. Gives us their uh, the the uh, uh, basic idea of where they're starting from, and and gives us a point to uh, to orient ourselves for the character arc that happens. Well, it does set a, a bookend that will come out at the end again. We need the resolution of, of this of this question: why why the Greek and the and the Roman? You know, it's a, it kind of it's a whiz bang start. You've got a character already abducted right in the first you know couple chapters there in the second chapter, and um, I thought it was a great way to start a book. Okay, uh, then uh, the the three characters with Annabeth and Butch proceed to Camp Half Blood. Uh, riding in the back of the chariot behind the Pegasi, because uh, there was more than one, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. And um, end up uh, crash landing in the lake. Uh, there at the lake, uh, right away, Leo's father uh, claims him. His father is Hephaestus, uh, but, uh, of course, Jason identifies him as Vulcan. Vulcan is his Roman form. Hephaestus is the Greek form. What he doesn't know is why he knows this thing. Of course, Jason has lost all of his memory. So how does he know? He just happens to know that it's the Vulcan form. Hephaestus was considered to be the god of the forge or the god of fire, therefore the god of creating things. It explains why Leo was very good about uh, about putting things together, about uh, putting together machinery, fixing machinery, this sort of a thing. Right. In an intuitive way. Right, right. He just, he wasn't even really paying attention. He just kind of did it. Right, he built the one critter uh, with uh, the one battle at the end. Which battle? Uh, yeah, Enceladus builds the uh, the critter to control the plow of sorts uh, while just fidgeting. He's he's creating thing while he's fidgeting. Yeah, yeah, and it certainly fits in with his father being Hephaestus. It's also important to note that his father is the the god of fire as well. Most of Hephaestus's children, as Leo finds out later, don't have abilities with fire, primarily just creating things. And Leo happens to be one of the few rather dangerous variety that can control and is not harmed by fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also learn a couple other things when they get to Camp Half-Blood right away. First, we learn more about um, Piper. I guess she has a vision there while she's... Um, uh, they she while she's taking a tour of the camp with uh, Annabeth, uh, she goes into Hera's um, temple, and there in Hera's temple, uh, she sees a vision about uh, with Hera, Hera telling her not to give in to the will of Enceladus uh, or the will of the giants, but rather to rescue Hera instead. Uh, in spite of the fact that uh, Enceladus has her father. So here we, we start to get a little more information about how her father is being kept by the giants at the uh, at the behest of Gaia, who we'll get to in a little bit later. 
we also learn a little bit more about Jason, how uh, he actually is the son of uh, uh, Jupiter, uh, the Roman form of Zeus, of course. Uh, when at the uh, the um, camp meeting, the council, he he calls down a thunderbolt uh, in front of everybody. And then finally we learn that Piper is actually the daughter of Aphrodite, which really doesn't seem to fit her character right away. But this is a, an important point to talk about her uh, character arc, because right away it doesn't fit her character. She's not the sort of, uh, you know, she, she kind of thinks of Aphrodite as the, the uh, beauty queen uh, sort of god. Uh, and she doesn't really think of herself that way. Um, but really, Aphrodite's uh, influence on Piper is more of the influence of, uh, of uh, charm speak, or the ability to influence other people. The other, uh, the other things we really wanted to talk about was uh, uh, Leo, when he, when he goes to visit the camp. They, they have, at Camp Half-Blood, they have different camps. A camp for each... Uh, uh, or, or not different camps, different cabins, a cabin for each of the uh, children of each uh, a god. So Jupiter has his, or uh, Zeus has his own cabin uh, where his children stay, and Hephaestus has a cabin where his children stay, and Aphrodite has a cabin where her children stay. When uh, Leo gets to uh, to his cabin, he makes a comment. He says, uh, do we have a steampunk theme going on here? And uh, I think you had some comments about that, Chris. Yeah, I mean, steampunk, this is only one of the examples, actually. And with each of the characters, there's an attempt by the author to connect their their godly traits and their character that way to, uh, you know, something grounded in our reality. And in the case of Leo, it's steampunk. Steampunk is, it, it's a way of taking mechanical things that, that uh, and putting them in the wrong time period, or, or not even just necessarily mechanical. Uh, it can be clothing and, and whatnot. So it would be, for example, having a science fiction show set in the far distant future, and yet they wear Victorian clothing. You know, From our culture, we call these mashups, right? We have two things that don't belong together, and they put them together. But it's been around a while. I mean, it's uh, Jules Verne, H.G. Wells, uh, Mary Shelley. You know, those, those, science, those were science fiction, but set in, in, in an era where it didn't make sense you know, far distant future, and yet they had all of their Victorian kind of sensibilities projected into the future as well. Uh, but that's only one example. I mean, each of these characters has uh, something like that. I mean, Piper, for example, you think that she's a kleptomaniac, right? Right. But but she's not. It's actually her using uh, her gift from Aphrodite to to manipulate people through her voice that she's able to use. So you, you've got some, you know, you know, you hear about teenage um, shoplifting I and mean, it being kind of a big deal. She's the best of it. I mean, she steals a car apparently. Right, and she doesn't even really <laughs> steal it. That was the point. She just she just convinced the salesman that he should give her the car for free. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. But the idea is, that, is, you know, to take some kind of reality that these children probably a, a child reading this book you know, especially, a, you know, a high school age would know, you know, they're going to know about shoplifting because probably one of their friends did it and got caught. And so connect the character to something they know in, in our reality. Uh, the other one would be, um, well, Jason, we don't, we don't get any help with in this book because he's, he's left in the dark as to who he is. Um, but Leo and Piper, we both kind of get some connections to the real world. It's also important to note that these characters are not ancient characters who have lived since the ancient Greek myths. Uh, these are modern-day children. They they are only thirteen or fifteen, sixteen years old, 
Um, they're not reincarnations of Jason. You know, Jason's not a reincarnation of the first Jason the Argonauts. He is a unique, unique character, a unique human being who has a namesake, uh, Jason, and who takes on many of the characteristics of the original Jason of the Argonauts, but is his, himself a unique character. So, uh, right. by setting yeah. them, uh, setting them in this, in this world record and creates that, uh, this junction you were talking about with steampunk. The other thing we should probably go ahead and touch on, because it's going to be one of the major tensions in the story, is bringing a little bit more uh, what's going on with Gaia and Piper's father. Piper's father has been captured by one of the minions of Gaia, known as Enceladus, uh, a giant, uh, one of uh, Gaia's children. Uh, what hap- Gaia is, uh, I guess, the oldest uh, god, uh, Greek god. She, uh, also known as... W- I guess more colloquially today, uh, Mother Earth. And uh, what happened was Mother Earth uh, gave her son, I forget which one it was, maybe it was Kronos, I don't remember which, uh, the weapon she needed to slice up and kill his father, Uranos, which, uh, as you know from the Greek term, is heaven. So he killed uh, his father and then and took control. Well, then the gods, uh, the Olympian gods, Zeus and so forth, got angry about this and put down the, the titans, which made, of course, Gaia angry. And so Gaia uh, got together with the god of hell, the deepest part of hell, and gave birth to these children. Uh, here we are. In Greek mythology, Enceladus is one of the giants, uh, Gaia's children, fertilized by the blood of castrated Uranus or Uranus, depending on how you like to pronounce that. He, along with his brothers, were the response that uh, Gaia set forth to um, respond to the Olympian gods. If I understand correctly, um, the Percy Jackson series is kind of a recreation of the war that the Olympian gods had with the Titans. And therefore, the Lost Hero series would be a recreation or a modern retelling, you might say, of the second battle uh, between these giants that Gaia creates and uh, and the Olympian gods yet again. So, back to the storyline. Uh, Gaia has captured um, Piper's father and, and is holding him uh, ransom so that Piper, trying to use this as a, as a tool to get Piper to turn uh, her friends in, to turn in uh, Leo and... Uh, Jason, uh, so that Leo and Jason don't uh, go and release uh, Hera. Uh, we find out that Hera is in prison, uh, and that uh, this prison that she's in, it's a cage, is, is sucking up her godly power in order to recreate Porphyrion, another one of, or the king of the giants that Gaia created. Uh, and she created him as the opposite of, of Zeus. Each of these gods has an opposite. And uh, she creates a Poiphyrion as the opposite of Zeus to attack and combat Zeus. Uh, she's uh, got uh, Tristan, uh, who is Piper's father, uh, in custody and threatens to kill him if uh, Piper doesn't turn Leo and um, Jason over. Mm-hmm. The other thing, the last thing that's important to note uh, about Camp Half-Blood is that Leo fixes Festus and uh, puts wings on him. Festus. Who's Festus, Chris? Festus is a mechanical dragon, <laughs> but has no wings. Bronze dragon. Celestial bronze. A bronze. Celestial bronze. Very steampunk. Uh, a dragon, but a mechanical one? This is kind of strange. And plus, it has a, it has a personality. Yes. Uh, and the, the origins are somewhat mysterious. I mean, we know who built it. Uh, what was his name? 
Beckendorf is the one who could control it, but then it's it's somewhat damaged. Leo does a great job keeping uh, keeping him under under control, repairing him through just some extraordinary gifts of uh, well, his tool belt that he finds in the uh, what do you call that place? Bunker nine. Bunker nine. He yeah, actually he finds this tool belt that can pretty much call up anything to repair and to clean and whatever. Right within limits. It's got limits. Uh, he actually fixes Festus. Um, uh, before he gets the uh, tool belt, uh, he, he Festus gets trapped. They're trying to trap him and kill him because Festus has gone nuts. Uh, he's a fire-breathing dragon, so obviously you don't want him rampaging through the camp. So he catches, he goes to one of the traps where Festus is caught, fixes him uh, enough for Festus to lead him to Bunker Nine, where Festus uh, shows him the uh, the uh, belt, the tool belt, and the rest of the bunker where the wings are. Then Leo puts the wings on him, and that's uh, Leo uh, Festus becomes, which also means happy, right? Festus means happy. Mm-hmm. But one of the lines in there was, so you want us to ride around the world on Happy the Dragon? <laughs> it is important to note, I, mean, I don't think we have yet, is is the uh, the concept of a quest. I mean, the, 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 quest is, the quest is what's going to guide this book. I mean, they have to go on their quest. This is what demigods do, is they go on quests. Right. And uh, it kinda, it's kind of their... Uh, write a passage if you like. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, so. I don't know what else you want to call it. Anyway, write a passage, and and Jason has no means of transportation, and so it's kind of if you like divine providence that uh, Leo uh, is inspired to to capture and 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 fix this dragon and make make it so he can fly. Right, uh, and he's and he's given you know maybe from his father, maybe not. Who knows. Uh, you know the the ability the the things that he needs to fix it where the wings came from we never know right for sure right. yeah the, speaking of the quest the in the next book especially i mean the next book going on a quest is what enables you to become a member of the community you're not a full blood member of the community until you've gone on a quest and uh, and successfully completed one so so when they return to the camp at the end successfully then they can elevate into positions of authority in the camp. Yeah, which is what because what happens right away with Piper. She becomes leader of the Aphrodite cabin. Before they make it up to Aeolius, they meet uh, Jason's sister, Thalia. And here's where we get a little more explanation as to uh, the background on, on uh, Thalia, who is a hunter of Artemis. And uh, and Jason, where he came from. Come to find out, what has happened is uh, Thalia is also the daughter of of uh, Zeus. Uh, you could actually say Thalia is the daughter of Zeus, whereas Jason is the daughter of Jupiter, uh, son of Jupiter. My apologies. Uh, their mother fell in love with Zeus, and uh, and had uh, Thalia first. Well, she, of course, was pining after Zeus because she really fell in love with him. So he couldn't show himself for some reason uh, in his Greek form, so he showed up in his Roman form instead, and they conceived and bore Jason seven years later. And evidently this was a huge scandal. Of course, it teched off Hera pretty bad because here he had uh, two children by one mortal woman. Uh, But it was also very rare to have two children uh, by the same mortal woman or mortal man but in the two different aspects. Well, what I found interesting, I mean, through all of the mythology, I've never quite been able to get my head around uh, the distinction between, you know, uh, not between a god and a demigod, but all the other mythical creatures in between. Now, how do the uh, how do the titans fit into that picture? How do the um, 
creatures and you know where do they come from and you know the the gods are are children of uh Uranus and well not all of them some of them are children of Uranus and uh Gaia others are children of their children the titans so like a child of Kronos and whoever he's espoused to and but they're but yet they're gods so they're different than titans titans predate the gods and and then there's the giants of course which come from Gaia but they're kind of below the titans and the gods in a sense uh, so there's this hierarchy in a, uh, uh, between all the various levels of creature or whatever. Right. Hard to kind of figure out, but the, I thought he did a pretty good job of, of keeping the distinctions clear and kind of understanding how they how they work together. And and he remains faithful to the Greek mythology without confusing it, without making it overly confusing. I think. Um, so I mean, he seems to be obviously you're in a different context, so. You know, these aren't gods in ancient Greece. These are God, the ancient Greek gods in America. So things are going to be a little bit different. Zeus is going to look a little bit different. He's going to wear a, you know, a pinstripe suit and wingtips or whatever. Um, so he's going to be a little different. But um, but I think for the most part, the general character of the gods remains faithful. It's not like Hephaestus was the god of love and he made him all of a sudden the god of fire. I mean, you look in the Greek... The the books on the ancient Greek mythology and Hephaestus was the god of fire and the god of forge working. So, right, right. But the the distinct mythologies attached to each character, it seems there's some variability to it. So this certainly, like with Midas and the water, uh, that that might be present in in one of the tellings and, and not in the rest of them. So he's got some opportunity there to to kind of make it work, you know, towards his uh, agenda. Right. There's a uh, there are creatures that that are. Uh, of of a lower class than the demigods in a sense, but but they they serve uh, mediating roles that they they interact between the gods and the and the people and the mortals or the demigods, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Not the mortals, but the demigods. Uh, so, uh, May, uh, what was her name? Melee. Melee. She she is an interacting. Uh, well, that was her original role anyway, is to interact between between her her god and and the demigods, and so they. <laughs> You know they have this interaction. Well, that that's contemporary to us. We know what we we have a different name for them, but you know that the angels are, they're created beings. They but they have a they have character like God in a sense that they're that they're immortal and um, but that they they serve us. They they are created in order to to serve us who are mortal. It, it it's it's kind of an odd. Relationship, so we should really be able to relate to this this communication thing. So that, I thought that was interesting too. Well, these are things you should expect to see in a in a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these kind of levels of of spiritual beings and and, and their interactions, and um, I suppose that's what the fairy is anyway. While Piper is out after being turned to gold by King Midas before she wakes up, uh, she recalls or has a dream about this uh, Cherokee story about this leader of the Cherokees making a hard choice. Uh, if you have your book with you, it's page 370 and following. Uh, well, I'll, I'll read her this. Uh, the, her dad told her a legend uh, how one day a Cherokee woman had seen a snake playing too near her children and killed it with a rock not realizing it was the king of rattlesnakes. The uh, the snakes prepared for war on the humans, but the woman's husband tried to make peace. He'd promised to do anything to repay the rattlesnakes. The uh, snakes sent him, er, sorry, the snakes held him to his word. They told him to send his wife to the well so that the snakes could bite her and take her her life in exchange. 
The man was heartbroken, but he did what they asked. Afterwards, the snakes were impressed that the man had given up so much and kept his promise. They taught him the snake song for all Cherokee to use from that point on. If any Cherokee met a snake and sang that song, the snake would recognize the Cherokee as a friend and would not bite. Of course, Piper responds, That's awful, uh, Piper had said. He let his wife die. Her dad spread his hands. It was a hard sacrifice. But one one life brought generations of peace between snakes and Cherokee. Uh, And and that becomes kind of the theme for... uh, the book until the conclusion where Piper has been holding the secret in about her father, how she's struggling with whether or not she should turn her friends in these friends that she's got on this quest with to save the gods. And, uh, and she's going to have to make a hard choice. Basically it's her father or her friends, or that's what it seems like. Uh, of course, uh, the Gaia mother earth knows what decision she makes, what decision she's making. And so, she has to be careful what decision she, uh, how she acts, uh, so that uh, she doesn't give the impression that she's given in to uh, her friends. But eventually, she tells them that she tells them what's going on, tells them that her father's being trapped and that she's leading them into a trap, and that uh, you know she's basically putting her trust in them. Uh, and then you know, kind of in response to this story, she's making a hard sacrifice, making the sacrifice that you might say of her father, uh, for the sake of her friends. Right, and and that's. That story arc. I mean, she really becomes the. the you have well. Each character has their own little interesting story. Uh, whether uh, Leo was responsible for his mother's death um, with Piper, it's you know whether she's going to have to. Um, she's going to have a hard choice, and wh- which way is she going to go? And is she going to sacrifice herself or or her friends, or sacrifice her father or her friends? Excuse me. Uh, and then, of course, uh, you know we need to find out. Uh, who our main character Jason is, you know, who is he truly? And that, so you've got these, these kind of tensions and we get little bits and pieces as we go through the book. So it's nice. Yeah. Well, and, and that's a a good point to make on the, on the character arcs, um, how Jason, Mm -hmm. Jason really doesn't change much at all. The way he changes is by discovering who he is. Uh, the main character Mm -hmm. arc and changes, like you said, occurs with Piper, uh, and learning to accept her mother as Aphrodite eventually, but also, uh, learning how to to uh, make the hard decision uh, regarding who she who she stands with, uh, but also Leo learning to harness his powers, the son of Hephaestus, um, in a sense to make amends for the death of his his mom right. by using those that gift in a way that's um, responsible. Right, and that's I was going to bring that up. Base uh, what happened with the death of his mother is he uh, he killed his mother by his use of fire when Gaia provoked him into it. He was going to try and kill Gaia because uh, he didn't know who she was. He just saw a manifestation of her and uh, <clears throat> and brought out the fire and ended up burning down the, the building where his mother was. Of course, he made it through. He's immune to fire because he's the, the son of Hephaestus that has the control over fire. Uh, but it brought about his mother's death, and so he always blamed himself for his mother's death. So like you said, how how he learns to control this gift and use it for good rather than being afraid mm-hmm. of it. Right. So that's a redemption story. Uh, eventually the, the three of them make it to Aeolus, the God of the winds. He originally was going to help them. He does tell them where to find Hera, uh, in, in order to rescue her. He, he tells them where to find Enceladus, but at the last minute he gets a, a report in from Gaia and Gaia tells him to kill the three of them. Uh, uh, so he dumps them out off the, um, the the floating mountain where he is above uh, Pike's Peak, and uh, they're saved by a wind spirit, Melly, 
as well as getting some help from Aphrodite, who who transported them from uh, from Colorado to California, where they needed to go in order to find Enceladus. When they make it to California, uh, they decide to rescue Piper's dad first, and then go after uh, uh, Hera. They go to the mountain, to Mount Diablo, where Enceladus is holding uh, Tristan McLean, Piper's dad. Uh, Jason manages to kill Enceladus, but he has to have the help of Zeus, which is um, uh, surprising at at best. Zeus had basically closed off Olympus. Um, He had decided there was to be no more interaction between uh, gods and demigods. And so uh, Jason was just kind of hoping for a miracle, you might say, when he was trying to kill Enceladus and Zeus. Um, Zeus aided him in killing Enceladus. These giants, you, you have to have a god and a demigod working together in order to kill a giant. One of these giants that Gaia gave birth to. After they rescue Tristan McLean, they head off to the Wolf House, or as we've uh, as as uh, it was explained to us by Thalia, I believe, Jack London's former house, to rescue Hera. Yeah, and there again, you know, a connection to the real world is very helpful. So you. Yeah, if you read White Fang or uh, Call of the Wild, you know Jack London seems to have a, a a gift for the knowledge of the wolves, right? Right. And so his his house is kind of a, a sacred place then, and it's just it's just a connection again to reality, so that you know you, you're kind of he's grounding his story not in all this mythical stuff, but but actually in things that act that we might actually know about. Yeah, well, and the the thing with uh, Jack London, too, we find out that Jack London was actually a demigod uh, who belonged to the, uh, uh, to the, as we'll find out later in the book, the other camp. We find out, basically, that there's two camps of demigods at the conclusion of the book. And, uh, and Jack London belonged to uh, Camp Jupiter, uh, which is, is the camp of the, of the Romans. Jack London's house becomes the place where the the wolf Lupa uh, begins the journey for all demi all Roman demigods. Uh, Lupa is the the mother uh, wolf that uh, raised Romulus and Remus, uh, the founders of Rome, and uh, and so she starts all demi Roman demigods start their uh, journey uh, there at Jack London's house. Well, this is also where Hera has been trapped, and where uh, by the trap that. Uh, Hera is in, Gaia is trying to raise, uh, raise Porphyrian back to life. Uh, Porphyrian is, of course, the giant king, um, the king of all the giants. Uh, what happens when they get there, I personally thought it was slightly anticlimactic, but uh, Piper sweet-talks the cage with her uh, charm speak, while Leo pulls out a battery-operated skill saw and decides to, uh, to uh, saw through the cage. When they managed to actually uh, uh, free Hera, uh, Poifirian had already been raised, he was already alive, but he descended back into the mud because he knew he couldn't uh, uh, attack Hera and kill Hera, and so he descends, uh, you might say, to return another day. But it's found out, they discover basically that what Gaia is trying to do is overturn Olympus. She's trying to pull up the old Greek gods uh, from there, uh, at the root, basically, uh, in Greece, at Mount Olympus, uh, that's where the giants are going to try and destroy the ancient Greek gods. Mm-hmm. One of the, we touched on it briefly just not too long ago, one of the major themes that comes out here is the difference between Camp Jupiter and Camp Half-Blood. Camp Half-Blood is the camp for the Greeks, and Camp Jupiter is the camp for the Romans. Uh, do you remember anything about the why they separated them, Chris? 
Yeah, because they in the past they they killed each other. <laughs> you know that they could never they couldn't coexist. That their character is different because their parents are. Uh, you know the the gods have different aspect in those two. So that Camp Jupiter is more warlike uh, because you know they're coming out of a more warlike. Um, you know, their their god their godparents are, are more warlike themselves. Basically, the that whenever the the children of the Greeks and the children of the Romans got together, they had a war. So whenever there was a war here on Earth, like the Civil War was the war that caused them to separate the two, uh, was because the Civil War was really a bunch. Uh, evidently, uh, was a bunch of demigods duking it out over who was who was better, Rome or or Greece. So what what happened was the gods decided to separate their children uh, so that they wouldn't know the existence of each other, which is why uh, Chiron, the the satyr at the very beginning, couldn't explain to Jason why he was surprised what was happening, for one thing. That what Hera is trying to do is trying to bring the two camps together so they could fight together against these these, uh, giants. That's why Chiron is so surprised, because this was supposed to be very taboo. This is They swore an oath not to bring them together again, and yet Hera is here trying to join the two together. Either things are going to work great and they're going to get along, or there's going to be huge problems once again between the Greeks and the Romans. Getting back to Camp Jupiter and Hapblood real quick, you know, they talk about how these these Greek gods have a Roman form and they have a Greek form, and now in this in the story here, these gods have an American form, and they've kind of they adapt themselves to the predominant culture of each time, and how this kind of becomes a tool for discussing what sociologists might call as a, a progression, uh, uh, religious progress or adaptation. So one culture takes the gods of another culture and adapts them uh, to their own uses. So the Romans take the Greek gods and make them more militant, you know. They become gods of war, or Ares becomes uh, more violent, more more uh, capable of killing and attacking, and so forth and so on. Becomes a better god of war. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, Z- uh, Jupiter is, is not the the uh, close, intimate Zeus, you might say, but he's more aloof, he's more standoffish, he's more curt, he's more uh, militant. Uh, even Thalia notes that, that he was different when he came back in his Roman form as opposed to his his uh, Greek form. Mm-hmm. I wonder what the personality changes, it just occurred to me, I wonder what the personality changes would have been from Roman, Roman to uh, American. Well, I think that the thing is, is we could not conceive of them in the same way as they did in ancient Greece. There's an essential disconnect between the way we view the world today uh, to the way the world, they viewed the world back then. Um, Charles Taylor calls it disenchantment, that there was, an, in some sense, an enchanted view of the world, not in the sense of what like modern fantasy enchantment, but there were, uh, the, the spiritual world impinged on the material world. The spiritual world influenced the material world. Uh, things that you couldn't see, gods that you couldn't taste, smell, or touch had a direct influence on the lives. I mean, direct influence on material things here and now. Whereas after, uh, after the enlightenment, this has kind of changed and shifted such that, uh, the spiritual world, if it's conceived of at all, is, for the most part, incapable of influencing the material world. The spiritual world is aloof, it's set apart, it's it's dis, uh, uh, separated uh, very uh, far and wide from uh, 
the spirit from the material world. And of course, we see this in the very basic differences between the way we treat uh, psychotic diseases. Uh, Prior to the Enlightenment, psychotic diseases would have been chalked up to demon possession. Uh, Whereas now, we wouldn't even conceive of demon possession as a possible option. We automatically uh, say, well, we'll treat this with medicine. We give it only material cause and a material conclusion. I'm not convinced that that's accurate. I'm not convinced that that it's not demon possession at times. Uh, but but for the modern mind, I don't know that we would, in, in the same way, be capable of viewing uh, the ancient Greek gods in an American sense, as it were. Yeah, maybe not American, but maybe you just mean modern. Uh, you know, from a from a scientific right. uh, worldview, that's that's where we're operating from. In a our secular world is is a scientific one. If it cannot be seen, heard, touched, felt, uh, observed in one way or another, then it then it can't be real, or it can't be explained. If it can't be explained, then it has to be left um, to to wonder, but not in a uh, but not not given an explanation um, from that wonder. It just becomes something wonderful, but unexplainable. What the what your point is is that. Uh, uh, if you lose that enchantment, as you called it, or um, what Lewis calls the sense of awe or wonder and or uh, inadequacy, yeah, his word is is the numinous. It comes from the. I'm sorry, real quick. It comes from the Latin numen or divine power. If you lose the numinous, if you lose the spiritual uh, having interaction with us, then you have no need for religion. If the spiritual is just spiritual and it has no interaction with the material, then then there's no religion. There's no reason to even have a religion, because religion is is you know the life of of this interaction between the spiritual and the physical, you know, between man and God or or, or whatever. In this case, uh, mortals, demigods, and other strange creatures, and 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 the gods themselves. Now, some people would argue there's this viral video going around on the internet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that that argues that that Christianity is a religion that is uh, is not to be religious. It's it's meant to just be spiritual. Uh, but that is a that's a, that has to be an anti-sacramental, uh, you know, anti-word uh, that is heard and preached and taught by by people. Uh, God can't become man if if you're going to say there's no religion. Right. If that it's a purely spiritual thing, and then it's just a God that's who's unknowable. But if God can be known, then uh, that changes everything. There, there's going to be a you know a cultus, a life that's going to be built around um, God being like us, becoming like us, becoming united to us in a way that's mm-hmm. essentially different from the way that the gods were united to human beings, uh, according to the ancient Greek traditions. Right, and the Roman too, because you've got this second, you've got this in between class, the the demigods. Who are are neither mortals nor gods? They're they're a new sort of, uh, they're a new race. It, it's it's half god and half man, as opposed to the incarnation, right? And and you know, with throughout this whole book, you see it, and I think you could probably say you would see it in every world religion apart from Christianity. Uh, that may be too bold to say, but maybe they they all have a sense of moral law or moral code guiding them, uh, and that and that moral law. Is comes from and it's and it's enforced by um, the spiritual, whatever that may be, gods, demigods, etc. So there's right and wrong, and it's enforced, and it, there's a duty to 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 you know 
to obey, which means that every world religion, including the Roman and the Greek here, um, God system, it's, it, it's all about the law. It's the rule of law. You know, do the right thing or Zeus is going to strike you down with a lightning bolt. Or, or as it comes out in, in the Son of Neptune book, the fates decide. I don't know how accurate this is, but she portrays the fates as the one who decide whether you go to Elysium, which is, uh, I guess, the Greek paradise, or you go to the burning plains, or if you go to hell, or whatever, you know, which level of hell you go to, based on the works that you do. Your works are placed in the balance, and it is your works that determine what you do. I mean, that's a religion of the law. It's based on your works, your work. I would argue, too, that, I mean, the fates, I I mean, I'm going to guess that the fates aren't the only, um, you know, the verdict isn't just going to come from the fates. It can also come from just the capriciousness of of the god. Right. You know, they they can just decide for no apparently good reason and a completely unjust reason to to do whatever they want. And and they're not guided by um by their own law even. <laughs> well, they're placed they have limits placed on them based on their interactions with the other gods. So Zeus can only provoke Hera so far before she responds with some horrible thing in response to something he did. Right. right or or you know he can only provoke Poseidon so far or or Hades or whoever it is they're not they're limited in the very same sense that we're limited today by you know the response of people around us uh, mm-hmm. um, rather than actually being respo- uh, 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 limited by absolute rules and and uh, such the, the the thing we want think we need to, to touch on real quick we were speaking of how these cultures adapt gods from various cultures and we need to be very clear that christianity is not has not taken uh, for instance like samson often what's quoted as samson is just a, a hercules myth uh of the old testament right that the greeks that the, the uh, ancient hebrews thought oh hercules is really cool we'll we'll do a hercules myth but we'll call him samson instead and that's not what happens in uh, in, in the christian myth you know that's a very historical critical view of the world and and uh, the right. you know the Herc- the samson myth or samson myth samson's story is not written like a hercules myth in any way shape or form you read the hercules myth and it's entirely different uh, in the mm-hmm. style and the tone the way the story is written and that's the point that cs lewis makes when he's talking about the Gospels, you know, the historical critical scholars say that uh, that that Jesus is just uh, the the um, uh, Palestinian version of the uh, the dying and rising God. Well, C.S. Lewis says it doesn't read like the ancient Greek myths about the dying and the rising God, right? Uh, it reads like a history book. They were written in an entirely different character, an entirely different tone, mm-hmm. uh, an entirely different intent by the authors. He also says that we shouldn't be offended um, if we find parallels in these myths, right. you know, to aspects of our own God, our own personality. Right. That actually, uh, that shouldn't be a threat to you. It actually uh, should be encouraging to you uh, that if there's similarities or resemblance between them, uh, that that's no mere accident. He says the resemblance between these myths and the Christian truth is no mere accidental than the resemblance between the sun and the sun's reflection in a pond, or between the trees and hills of the real world and the trees and hills of our dreams. In a sense, these myths could even be considered preparation for the gospel. Like you said, they're religion of the law. They don't provide you with the antidote. The pagan stories could be a divine hinting in poetic and ritual form at the same truth, which was later focused and, so to speak, 
historicized in the incarnation. Well, and and yeah, the the point C.S. Lewis is making there is we shouldn't be surprised because we all descended from the same Adam, right? If we Correct. all have the same father, why would we be surprised to find um, uh, fractured uh, or splinters of of uh, the gospel stories or, or the um, the Old Testament stories and these other false religions? Uh, it's not saying they're true, but we shouldn't be surprised to find parallels in these stories, like you said. All right, uh, maybe to close, we'll, we'll uh, read this quote from page uh, 90 that I thought was rather interesting. Chiron, the satire, asks Jason, right, when he meets him, uh, about uh, these gods. He says, so do you believe these gods, or those gods still exist? Yes, Jason said immediately. I mean, I don't think we should worship them or sacrifice chickens to them or anything, but they're still around because they're a powerful part of civilization. They move from country to country as the center of power shifts, like they move from ancient Greece to Rome. Hmm. So kind of getting back once again to the idea of these gods um, uh, adapting themselves to the various cultures, why do you think uh, these gods aren't... Why all of a sudden, when they come to America, are they no longer worthy of being worshipped or having chickens sacrificed to them? If they are truly gods then why wouldn't you worship them? Why wouldn't you have a sense of a, a need to worship them? Well, I think what happened in America is they become depersonalized. Uh, it's not that they're gone. That I mean, we still worship war, the god of war. Uh, but we just put a different you know face upon it. We call them the armed forces or the Pentagon or something. And, or preemptive uh, strike. Or preemptive strike. I mean, where did we learn these things? These things have been done before. You know, they're, they're part of our nature. We've uh, and, and we, but we worship our. Uh, some people worship worship our military in a way that we would treat them like a god, like you like you mentioned with uh, demon possession and, and say mental illness. Um, I don't know that there is a case of mental illness that isn't demonic. Right. I'm just saying the demonic they they work with you know all the various causation that we have in our world, whether it's chemical or, or biological or, or um, uh, environmental. Uh, they work with those things in order in order to to accomplish the the means that they wish, which of course is to lead us away from God, the true God. You know, is Aphrodite around? I mean, you don't you don't have to you don't have to go too far. I, she's alive and well, and I think she's still around, and she's still trying to accomplish the same ends. She's not a god of of marriage. <laughs> she's called the sexual revolution. Yeah, exactly. So the inclinations towards these things are still there. They just, like I said, they become depersonalized. We don't, we don't have a, a God named attached to them. Or maybe, maybe despiritualized, perhaps. I mean, we, we, I mean, we, we've, we want very much to be spiritual people, right? But we don't have any concept of spiritual being or essence. I mean, we're materialists. Whereas, you know, the God of the Trinity is, is very, well, obviously with three persons, there's a lot of personality there to go around. <laughs> that shouldn't be surprising to us. I mean, what's revealed in Scripture about our God, is, it shouldn't be surprising to us that he, he's interesting and complex because, because we're made in his image. Even though that's corrupted, we still, we, we still reflect that and that, and that we're, we're strange and complicated ourselves, <laughs> you know. And having special gifts and talents and interests and and uh, ways of speaking and we we are eternal beings. Uh, we are a combination of spirit and matter, right? We are both spiritual and material, and and therefore share in some sense in that 
we have a dual personality, you might say, as both spiritual and material. Is my making sense? Mm-hmm. Excuse me. When you say material, you're referring to, of course, uh, creation since the fall. You're talking about uh, mortal, that which that which right. is is given and then dies. And not just before the flood, but he, or before the fall, or after the fall, but also before the fall. I mean, from the very moment of our creation, we were made to be uh, material and spiritual, like the two, the two together. They're they're never meant or intended to be separated. And in that sense, we we in, participate in a dual nature. Whereas you could say uh, God is, you know, not could say we do say God is triune, three in one. Uh, we are in some sense two in one. We are one person, but at the same time, we have these two natures. But not in a sense of a new class of beings. But but you know, having been baptized into Christ, you you are. Uh, you share in in his divinity. I mean, you're brought you're brought into that eternal reality. But even those not baptized share an eternal soul. Like, will have an eternal existence, right? Ah, uh, yes. They don't like to believe that, right? Because because it's a it's an eternity of of torment and damnation um, for those who don't believe, right? Any summary thoughts on the book? Is there is there really going to be a uh, resolution to all of the the conflict? Or is it going to be Percy Jackson series, five books, and then five books of this series, and then it's all going to happen again? <laughs> Will there ever be a final destruction of, you know, well, you can't. You can't destroy Gaia. Right, right. No, you can only lull her back to sleep. Well, yeah, and, and that was the, the worldview of this, of this myth is a, a very cyclical uh, worldview that these things just start over and over and over again. If you're, I was reading uh, Copleston's history of philosophy, and uh, reading up on the uh, pre-Socratic philosophers, and they weren't, um, many of them weren't religious in the sense of that we tend to think of them, where they, you know, identified uh, every force of nature with some god, but they were trying to provide rational material explanations to the things that they saw. But material for them, the, the stuff of the universe, atoms, um, were eternal. Uh, material always existed, and, and and therefore what ended up happening was is every however many um, uh, aeons or or generations. And generations is a bad term because generation denotes like forty years, but like span of time, uh, everything went through a, a cycle. Everything imploded on itself and then recreated itself, and so the world uh, was in some sense always existing. Uh, so also with the myths, right? The myths repeat; they never really end, like you're saying. I thought that Reardon did a good job of of also kind of giving us some of that background on the various ages, you know, of time mm-hmm. and of, of the first the first Titan battle. Even though we're coming, I mean, I came into this book not having read his previous uh, the Percy Jackson series. Uh, I didn't. I, I he gave enough of the back background that that I could jump kind of right in on that. That that's a good point to bring out. You don't have to have read the Percy Jackson series to get what's going on in this one. Uh, you will certainly be enhanced by it. There are references back to the Percy Jackson series uh, several times through this book, but it's not required reading. You could certainly dive right in at this book without having to uh, have read the other one beforehand. Stories like this are not ultimately harmful to the faith, uh, but in many sense awaken some, as Lewis would say, some desire for an experience of joy or an experience of the numinous, uh, an experience mm-hmm. of God, because these... Uh, these help us wonder and, and, and ponder. Right, and we can see God's hand in, in, the, in the history of man. I mean, it, there are times in our history where, where uh, 
not the mythological history, the true history, that, that, that there are great deeds done by man. So we, we know of nobili- noble um, sacrifice. We know of, um, of hard choices, you know, impossible choices that, that come to a good resolution. Um, you know, we know, we know of those who are seeking redemption for something that they've done, uh, whether it was their fault or not. You know, whether it was through trickery that they, they you know, trying to make amends for that. We know that kind of personality because that's, that's, that's who we are. And, yeah, we like the story. We like the struggle. We like to see the story. And we like to see them work out the story and the struggle. Are you going to read the next one? Yes, I'm going to read the next book. I ordered it uh, before the show began. So it will be here in two days. Thank you, Amazon Prime. <laughs> I highly recommend it. The next one is certainly good. I will certainly look at uh, acquiring the first series after having read this one. I hear the first one. Many people who've read the Percy Jackson series, uh, while they like this one, still prefer the first one. The first one is really a, a well-done one. He's also doing one called the Cain Chronicles, which is kind of set in Egypt and uses the gods of Egypt. That's kind of the background that he writes with. Correct. But again, set in a modern context. Right. But I've also heard uh, some people mention that it doesn't come off quite as well as uh, these two series. So, I don't know. Maybe the Egyptian gods don't uh, match up to our own personality as well. Or maybe, you know, maybe they're just harder because they're not as Western as Greece and Rome. As they say, all of Western philosophy are basically footnotes to Plato and Aristotle. are very closely tied to Greece and Rome. Overall, a really good story. Uh, I don't know that it'll ever be a classic in the sense of something like, uh, I mean, even the sense of something like Harry Potter. I mean, I don't know that I necessarily consider Harry Potter a classic, but I think it's something we'll read for generations down the road. This book is very tied to our culture at the time. Uh, she makes references to certain things that people who 20, 30, 40 years from now may not know what an iPad is, you know, or some of these other references to some of the articles of clothing they're wearing or this sort of thing. He, sorry, did I say she? I meant he. So I, I don't know that it'll stand the test of time uh, the way classic literature is, but it's certainly a good and enjoyable read. And not overly complicated. The characters are pretty, uh, they're not simplistic, but at the same time, it, there's not uh, too many characters. You can't keep track of them and know what's going on. It would be helpful to have a uh, handbook of Greek mythology on hand uh, if you'd like to look up some of these characters. Um, I recommend Robert Graves' uh, The Greek Myths, Volumes 1 and 2. I found an old edition for uh, 15, in good condition, with slipcovers. So. And our next book is Gulliver's Travels, with a link in the show note. The classic, been around since uh, late 18th century. So. It is an allegory, uh, a straight-up mm-hmm. allegory. Uh, by J- it was Jonathan Swift, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Also, also known for the fantastic word, uh, work, um, A Modest Proposal. Please leave us any comments on the Facebook page or send us an email. We'd love to hear from you if you have any recommendations or comments. Do leave comments on the website as well under the podcast. Uh, we'd like to hear from you guys, uh, whoever's listening. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.